I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Michael Skernick of Michael Skernick Wine stops by today to tell us what it's like to be Michael Skernick. America, I have a, a sorry and sad truth to, to break to you. He is Michael Skernick and you are not, and he is on the show today. Hi, Michael. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you, buddy. Hey, Levy. This is, this is great. It's a pretty glorious morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's yeah. uh, almost like, a, I feel like it's a culmination of a uh, of the show in a way like we finally got you here like you your name has come up a few times on the episode so i feel like now we we're uh-huh. we have the source we found we were you know we were talking to tributaries and now we right. see well i'm not going to tell you, you know anything. i'm not going to tell you anything significant anyhow uh thanks for inviting me no it's, it's happy good to see to be you here i noticed that you have interviewed quite a few of our former illustrious um ex skernic employees who have gone on to some pastors i don't know whether they're greener or browner or Whatever, but um, have yes. you ever done the family tree, like kind of the no, reunion no, no, party? No. I've thought about in my head. I've thought yeah. about the reunion party because that would be some great wine at that party, right? It's just that I don't know any of my ex employees that would be willing to pay for any of that. Uh, Skernick Wines is twenty five years old. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you, and I'm still thirty seven. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a magic trick that you pulled off well, sir. Yeah, we we'll just keep drinking our wines and. Well, they it was using a, olive oil. You didn't have to be twenty-one when you first started, right? It was a lower age. It was eighteen. Involved. Yeah, it was eighteen. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. You got started, and how did that all happen? From the beginning. Yeah, from the beginning, from the beginning man. Beginning. I mean, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. You know, I, I was a kid. I, I, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I, I went to college. I lived in uh, in, in Massachusetts. Um, wanted to be a musician. Came back to. I, said, you know, I also wanted to live in Manhattan, even though I grew up in Long Island. I'm a New York boy. Uh, always wanted to live in the city. So I had an opportunity to get a really sweet apartment in Tribeca around the time that there were really only three people living there, besides, two besides myself. One was Harvey Keitel and the other was, was, was Robert De Niro. And um, I needed to, I wanted to be, be a musician. I went to a couple of parties, met some musicians. Hey, how do you guys, how do you guys earn a living when you're trying to do this? Well, we work in restaurants. Really? Have you ever worked in a restaurant? No. Uh, well, that's the way to do it. You know, we work lunch. Basically, that's the how it works. You know, you go to get to get to the restaurant at eleven o'clock, set up for lunch. You're done by two thirty, and uh, you can pursue your musical pursuits. So, I said that sounds pretty cool. Um, I lived in Independence Plaza, which is you know, which is still is on on uh, Greenwich Street and uh, Chambers. Okay. It was a quite a different. Uh, you know, vantage point back then, 1976, when I moved in there. And I looked, I looked up, and between between the parking lot in front of, of Independence Plaza, there was nothing but until you hit the Twin Towers. And so I said, you know, I heard there's a restaurant up there, and I went up and uh, filled out an application. Bit, you know, actually, not I'm not embarrassed to say, lied about my experience. Uh huh. Well, and uh, work for a lot of people. You know, I got up there, and um, I, I think I had the look, and uh-huh. they, they hired me, and that's how I got into the restaurant business. So it that was, was just, the, that was the beginning. You really. looked up, and there was the tallest building. And, I said, and I've heard, you know, this restaurant yeah. had just opened. This was uh, this was September of '76. 
and the restaurant opened in March, I believe, of 76. And I heard, you know, this is, this is the greatest, coolest new spot. It was close. I could walk to work. I mean, who can say that in Manhattan? And so uh, anyway, I got hired. I really knew nothing about the restaurant business. I trailed as a waiter, worked as a waiter uh, for a week. And then I, then I got, got, a, got a job and uh, was making quite a really serious living for a kid living in New York. Um, and it, it, it was great. It was fun. It was, it was a blast. I mean, first of all, you know, waited on amazing people because sure. that was the place people came by at the time. Yeah. I mean, I waited on John Wayne. I waited on uh, Mick Jagger. I mean, Jackie O. I mean, I, and Jackie Onassis was probably the most of all the people. On, I mean, everyone who was anyone at the time came through, you know, came through those doors. I think Jackie Onassis was clearly the most powerful personality to be in the room with. Is that true? Yeah. She lit it up? She didn't say anything. She, it was, I don't know. I think it was just, uh, I think it was part what we bring to it, to, a, to right. an experience as well as her persona, her presence. I mean, the way she moved across the floor. Awesome, ex awesome so experience. So Kevin Zarelli's there. Kevin. I, and so a, a position became available at the wine, in, the, in the wine cellar for an assistant wine steward sommelier and I applied for it and, and got it, which meant an immediate pay cut. So I had, I had, I was married. Yeah. I had a, had a baby. Lisa was maybe six months old and uh, I was earning big bucks, taking home cash at Windows on the World, living the high life, awesome time. And then I went to work for Kevin for $11,000 a year before taxes. And that was interesting. So you made a decision then to say, I'm interested in wine. Yeah, I was interested like, in wine. My, my, it started yeah. actually, my mother and father went to Europe in 1970. Okay. Um, came back, they fell in love with wine. My mother bought a walk-in. This is like a suburban split-level house in Merrick, Long Island. We installed a walk-in refrigerator in the basement and she bought a bunch of wine. You know, at that time, 61, 66 Bordeaux's. A uh, lot, lot of that stuff. And, you know, Harmon and I still, my brother Harmon is my partner. We have, still have a few bottles left. Uh, well, of, I'm not doing anything cellar. this evening if you're... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was exposed to wine through, yeah. through my family, which is also, given, given the, the era, extremely unusual, um, you know, to, to be in, on, the south, on the south shore of Long Island, having anything but, um, you know, uh, carbonated sweet sodas, for beverages or to have any kind of consciousness like that. So, I, and I knew something about wine, got the job in the restaurant, was a little bit hip to wine, learned from, just from being there, because Kevin had put together what was the greatest wine cellar in the United States for some time at that time. I mean, all the old Bordeaux were sourced directly from, Alexis Lachine actually sourced all the, all the Bordeaux for that list. I didn't know that. And um, Gerald Asher, if you know that name. I do. Gerald it's one worked, of my favorite names. Gerald worked for Austin Nichols, and uh, he made, you know, he was infamous for making a large bet on, I believe, um, a really bad vintage in Bordeaux, which basically helped put Austin Nichols out of business. Oh, is that true? Yeah. But, you know, these, these, the wines that were there were just incredible. And that's how I framed my palate, because I was able to taste everything in the cellar over the course of the two years that I worked in the cellar. Is that something you look for in people that you hire today, that they've been exposed to wine uh, maybe through their family or that they've made a commitment to tasting a lot of wine? You can sort of just have, you have a conversation with somebody mm -hmm. and you can tell if the passion, I think it's, it's, it's pretty quickly evident if someone has, it's not like, show me your baseball card, I want to see your stats, what have yeah. you tasted, you, who do you know? It comes out, I think, you know, and... and in fact, you know, we're kind of jumping around the conversation, but the two key reasons why Skernick Wines has been as successful as it has is that we're, you know, we're really, really serious about how our selection process for the wines, we have, we feel we have a great portfolio, which is reflective of my palate and Harmon's palate, of course. Um, but we're even more selective about the people that we hire and the employees that we have who have joined the company over the years. And I think that's partly reflective in some of your, your past guests on this show who have gone on uh, to, to do things. Clearly, know. they had a right. passion. Right, yeah. right. So, so the company gets started. You so what, yeah, so go out to California. Uh, yeah, we're jumping ahead because uh, we don't have all, my, all that much time. Uh, I did a bunch of different things in the business, a lot of which was uh, really, you know, how do I say this? You know, uh, I'm not objective, but I feel like if you become a salesperson for Skernick Wines, not that it's easy, but you know, look at the portfolio. You know, when you go out with with 
samples or bottles of wine, you are basically, you know, you're leapfrogged, you've leapfrogged ahead to having things that are going to turn people's heads. Not everybody's going to love every, everything that we have equally as much as maybe I do, but you've got a great portfolio. And uh, I spent some years working in the part of the business prior to starting the company where, you know, it wasn't that easy. I had to really be <clears throat> much more resourceful. I had to find the beauty within the ugliness and find a way to, to uh, it wasn't a struggle, but it kind of sharpens your skills. It's like survivor in some way, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you never do that, you don't really develop those skills. You don't know what it's like. So yeah. I, you know, I, I, I learned a lot. So when I started the business, not only did I, uh, did I love wine, have a passion for, for wine, looking to discover new things. I also understood the value of, of marketing. I understood what public relations was. I, 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 I had exposure to the national market. Um, so even you, I think, in, in introducing me today, said, you know, Michael Skernick Wine is a distributor. I don't, we don't think of ourselves as a distributor. We think of ourselves as a marketing company. Is that true? Yeah. yeah, because in all in all industries, you know, a distributor is like you know the Anheuser Busch distributor, the mm-hmm. Coca Cola mm-hmm. distributor. They have a warehouse. They have trucks. They have guys that that with hand trucks, <laughs> and or, or the Wonder Bread distributor. They go into supermarkets and they they do the inventory and they they you know they bring the bread and put it on the shelves. They are distributing products which are essentially 100% distribution products. You know, the, the, the marketing has, the, ha, the advertising has created this, this demand for a product and they just distribute it. They have no say really in, in how that product, whether, whether it's successful, where it's placed, how it's, you know, what, what it tastes like, all that stuff. We are a marketing company, uh, start from scratch, looking for great discoveries and bringing them to market. Has it been then a challenge to keep it fresh, Michael, over 25 no, years it really, with different changes in the portfolio? It, it has not been a challenge, you know, because there's so much out there and there's so much happening all the time. But um, I mean, so, you know, one time you had uh, a particular importer of Australian wines and then stylistically it felt like you went in a different way and you got a different importer well, of Australian know, wines. This is a public forum, yeah. Ron, and, you know, I, 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 I'm not afraid to to tell you exactly what happened with that because I think it's pretty interesting. I'd love to hear. Um, we represented the Grateful Palate, which was was a fine company, had a fine portfolio of Australian wine for a mm-hmm, while. Mm-hmm. Got to the point where the, the emphasis or the focus of the company was shifting away from beautiful, um, artisanally made estates in Australia yeah. that reflected the terroir of Australia, um, be it what it, what it is. And went to um, coming up with with labels and brands and, that were slapped on bottles that came from who knows where, which I'm not religiously opposed to if the wines were good, but the names of the wines were bitch, sucks, f period u period, etc. 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 And I, and I said to Harmon, I said, you know what, done, done with this. I this is not. I'm a, I'm out of here. And we were doing six million dollars a year in business right it was quite successful with, with that portfolio so you know it's kind of difficult you would imagine to say goodbye to six million dollars but yeah. you know the the last straw was was this company had a distributor summit in chicago we went to chicago already we're feeling this is not this doesn't feel right went to chicago the presentation was absolutely ludicrous and way off the mark not about wine anymore we're out of here so long and the next day, we got a call from from Ben Hammerschlag, and so it turned out that Martin Scott ended up picking up Grateful Palate. We took Epicurean. It was kind, it was of, kind a swap. of a swap. We went from six million to two million, and we were happier than pigs and shit. So, is it important to say, "Hey, this is what we're about"? Um, is it important to say no sometimes? Keep it, keep it to well, what you want. Absolutely, you know. Do I mean, you see we yourself? Say no, we say no. You know, today, twenty four out of twenty five times. Yeah. So it's it's about the selection through yeah, the process, right. and, both and, for the employees and the portfolio. Yeah, I think that's that's the key. That's the key, and and and, and you have to pay your bills on time. And right about the time <laughs> that sometimes big companies who are involved in import start to make real money is right about the time when maybe they're less focused on some of the quality in the bottle. Or is that not I true? think it's cl- you know to me it's clear that that the two large companies 
large liquor distributors at the time were, were Charmer and Peerless, who have since merged. Um, thank, thank you, Charmer. Thank you, Peerless. You know, thank, thank you all for giving us the opportunity because you didn't pay attention. You didn't care about wine. You didn't care about quality. So within, I want to say, you know, maybe three, four years in the, uh, in the mid-80s, company named Lauber was formed, a company mm -hmm, named mm -hmm. Martin Scott was formed, a company named Skernick was formed, and a company named Winebow was formed, okay? So, which today, collectively, um, well, Lauber doesn't exist anymore, but collectively, you're talking about, you know, five, six hundred million dollars in business that these, that the big distributors forgot to notice was on the table. Mm -hmm. And so they gave us the opportunity to go in there and do something that wasn't being done. Do you, did you see yourself as a wine company for wine people, wine lovers? Uh, not not necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really was a very linear focus for me. It was like, I I love wine. I love turning people on to things, to, mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to new things. I had a decent enough palate that I could tell the difference. I, I learned, I found, I, found, yeah. I found that early on. When I was at Windows and I was tasting that, I, I could see, I could tell the difference more easily than the next person between, you know, crap and good, good and very good, very good and excellent, excellent and outstanding. So luckily for me, whatever it is that defines my palate, uh, when I started bringing in wines and showing them to people, lo and behold, I got positive feedback. And so, the, you know, it's like a positive feedback, do it again, go back, find another one, bring it to market, have people you know, make people happy. That's what it was. It wasn't like, I'm, I didn't come up with a, I don't have a mission. We don't have a mission statement. We didn't, we didn't go to business school. We didn't come up with some grand plan to do this thing. It was more of an organic process of, Hey, this, let's try this. This is cool. You know, the first time I, the, the business of Skernick Wines, which is founded actually in September 3rd, 1987, five weeks before the biggest stock market crash since the Great Depression, including September 2008 in a percentage basis. We lost 22% of the Dow Jones average in, in a couple of hours that day. But guess what? We survived and we survived 9-11 and we survived, you know, so there's a sense of resilience when you go through all those experiences and you see um, that, you, that, you know, you, you can make it through. But going back to the beginning, um, I, I would like to mention a guy named Ray Wellington. Have you heard that name? No. Any of you listeners, I hope that there are people out there that know who Raymond Wellington was. Ray was the, uh, after I left Windows on the World, he became um, the head buyer, head sommelier under Kevin. When Kevin kind of promoted himself and Ray was, and then later on he went to work for Alan Stillman and ran the wine program for the Smith, Smith & Walensky New York Restaurant Group. Okay. And he came up with a concept called California Cash, C-A-C-H-E. Today it would be spelled C-A-S-H based on, based on all, all of the elite brands that are being sold from California. California Cash was for the post house. Was the, the idea was to go out to California and find a small list of really super interesting small boutique wines that could be brought in exclusively for the wine list at the post house. Okay. And, that's, and that's what happened. That's what we did. And And... And since Ray and I were friends, we were both going out to the Monterey Wine Festival. He was going out there to look for wines. I was going out there to play in a band called the Winettes, which was the lamest name for a band ever, but one of the most fun things I've ever done. It was a band that I was the lead guitar player for with Kevin Israeli, Josh Wesson, and Joey Delisio from the River Cafe. A guy named Richard Regner who's not in the business anymore. And I was, I was going to play the Monterey Wine Festival with the band, and I said, you know, Ray, I'm going to be out there. So he picks me up at the airport in San Francisco. And, and on the drive from San Francisco to Monterey, he starts telling me about his plan for the California cash. And I said, that's, that's amazing because I have a, I'm out here for two reasons. I'm out here for the band performance, but I'm also out here because I'm looking for new wines. I want to start bringing in some special wines. Let's do it together. I'll help you bring in the wines for the California cash and maybe together. So, you know, we came back to New York after a couple of days. We had William Selliam, we had Robert Talbot, we had Peter Michael. Um, we had six wineries all together that that we showed. So the so the post house had a wine list had the box on the wine list which said California Cash, and they had these wines. And the deal I made was you know you've got them exclusive for ninety days, and after that, SLA 
they're not listening, right? Because that's not possible. But this was a long time ago, you know, in a place far, far away. And so that, that's how that started. And um, that was easy. But I mean, speaking of the SLA regulated market, was it, was it helpful that you had some time to sell the products because you're such uh, a vivacious salesperson before you had to pay for the products? Was 30-day terms a really important thing? Oh, my God, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because we were able to collect from the customer before we had to pay. Before you had to pay, yeah, right. which is a pretty good business model that might be better than some other business models. That I, can think I have of. no, you know, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm really a free market, free trade kind of person, generally. Mm-hmm. And I don't really believe that the liquor industry should have advantages, but it goes back to the repeal of prohibition. You know, it's a sin, basically. Yeah. So there's, I mean, people, they still, the governmental agencies kind of still look at alcohol and they, you know, it's, there's no longer the BATF, it's called the TTB, but the fact that they lumped together alcohol, tobacco, and firearms in, in one organization tells you a little bit how out of touch they were and still are. Um, but it's like saying, I don't believe that we should have an advantage over the coffee guy, or the fish guy, the, the, you know, the, the restaurant supply guy, but we do. It's not my fault. I didn't put it in place, but no, guess no, no, what? I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it to you. I'm saying, yeah. in general, the philosophy yeah. is like, it's there, we're taking advantage of it. Right. It's a tool. It, it, you know, but philosophically, I don't think that there should be an advantage for, for the wine and liquor distributors. But we have it, and it, it enables a lot of us to, to go into business without any money. Right. So, yeah. and, and, you know, with good results in, in your case, I mean, yeah. in a lot of other cases too, yeah. but it, it, you could go there, you could forge a deal with someone like Helen Turley, you yeah. didn't have to pay cash down at that time and you could sell it before you had to pay for right. it. But the catch 22, when you start a business is, you know, you have to look somebody in the eye and say, you know, trust me, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have any experience, but you know, and that, the, that moment of trust or the important um, cog in development of, of my entire business life was Randall Graham, who's sitting across the table much the way you are right now. And it was, it was, it was interesting because Bonnie Doon was the hippest wine, winery in 1985, 1986, 1987, you know, through 90. And I wasn't the first one there, although Bonnie Doon Winery was the first wine in the Skernick Wines portfolio, historically Is speaking. that true? I yes. did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it had already been in the market with Neil Rosenthal. And Neil, you know, had a store and he had a small, a small distribution business. And uh, I had lunch with Randall. I went out there. Actually, it was the Wynettes, the band that brought me out there. Josh... It was the same weekend of the Monterey Wine Festival. Josh Wesson had set up a lunch up at up in Santa Cruz, up at Bonnie Doon. And we went up there, Kevin, Josh, Joey, myself. That's the day I met Charlie Trotter and, and, and Charlie's first wife, Lisa. And there was a bunch of us sitting around, and that's how I met Randall. And I went back and had lunch with him a week later. And he said, you know, he looked me in the eye and said, you know, dude, I, I, I like you. I think yeah, I'd like, you know, Neil... He's a nice guy and everything, but he won't sell the Van Gris, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is which is Randall's, you know, rosé. He was one of the first to say, "Hey, you know, um, California's a Mediterranean climate. Uh, instead of Cabernet and Bordeaux varietals, etc., we should be planting Mediterranean varietals and dry Provencal-style rosé." So he said, "Neil, you know, under under duress, bought some Van Gris and then wouldn't reorder it." And I said, well, I will. And that's the wine you still sell today. Yeah, we still sell today. And uh, that's how I got started. Because once I had Bonnie Doon in my portfolio of one, <laughs> I could then go out and say, talk. hey, well, I got Bonnie Doon. Yeah, yeah. because well, I didn't have to say that. I would make my pitch and they'd say, well, who else you got? Right. And it used to be, well, uh, you know, nobody. But yeah. now, now it was, was Bonnie Doon. And then we were able to launch from there. So, What was the conversation like with Helen Turley? How did that all go down? Well, Helen, you know, how did I meet Helen was, you know, interesting. I, two things. One was there's this, this is a fantastic little wine shop in Calistoga called All Seasons, connected to a, a restaurant called the Silverado Restaurant and Tavern. Alex Durkissing and his, and his wife used to own both things. And Helen's husband, John Wetloffer, was working in the store, you know, minimum wage. And I would, you know, whenever I went out to California, I would wander into that store various look see what's going on and i walked in one day and there was a stack like 
like a, much like the mantle of your fireplace here, there were about 18 empty bottles of California Chardonnay. And John Wetlaffer wasn't in there that day, but Alex Dirkson's wife was. And I said, you know, that's interesting. I know all those wines, but what's that Peter Michael bottle? Oh, she said, well, that, that's actually, that's the wine that won the tasting. This was a blind tasting that was conducted a week ago, and, and that's the winner of the tasting. I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm Michael Skernick. I've got a company in New York. Um, she says, well, the winemaker, Helen Turley, actually lives up the street. I, I can call her. And she brought, pulled out one of these, I can see it now, one of these black phones with the white rotary dial, and she dialed up Helen. And um, Helen came over and had lunch, and that's how it, that's, And then after lunch, she took me up to Peter Michael, which was not yet a winery that had released any wine. It was pre-release, and I could see right away. The other thing was I had Which had, is another brand she, you still have today. Yeah, she, she made, she used to work for B.R. Cohn, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the B.R. Cohn Olive Hill Ranch Cabernet, sure. 1984, 1985, are legendary. The 84 is a legendary wine that no one knows about. That's the, that's, that's the kind of legend yeah, you want to know about. Yeah, because 85 is a more prestigious year yeah. for a lot of people. But I had had that wine, and when I found it, I didn't know that she was the winemaker, but that was one of the great, great, Cabernets of the 80s that nobody knew about. And so that's how I met her. And, uh, you know, we got along and, you know, that was it. And we started selling Peter Michael. And then she left Peter Michael in, in duress and started Marcusan. Actually, Marcusan, which is a well-known, famous California, small California winery. It's actually a winery now out in the Sonoma Coast. And they're the ones that actually in modern times, defined the Sonoma Coast as the place to go and grow Pinot, Pinot Noir, um, based on the fact that they had had a wine from a, a place called Seaview Ranch, which is up near um, Fort Ross. That was like, you know, literally the last ridge before the Pacific. They had one bottling, one wine from Seaview that really blew their minds. And that's how they, from based on that, <clears throat> they decided and determined that they could they could make the greatest Pinot Noir in America, they felt, out here. But prior to that, Helen uh, actually made a small amount of spectacular Chardonnay, two, two particular single vineyards, Hyde and Lorenzo, 1990 vintage, and she had no place to make them. This is when she was out of, out of work, because she Peter Michael, she left, she had nothing going on. And uh, Bert Williams and Ed Selliam at William Selliam said, hey, you know, why don't you make the wine here? So she had nine, bottle, nine barrels, excuse me, of uh, Lorenzo and four, four barrels of Hydro the other way around. And believe it or not, Helen Turley and John Wetlaufer didn't have the funds to bottle this wine. They could not afford. They had the wine. They made the wine. I said they were going to sell it off in, in bulk. <laughs> I said, well, this, this is a famous, these are today famous wines, right, collectible wines. I said, well, you can't, you can't sell that off in bulk. I mean, well, we can't afford to bottle. I said, well, I'll bottle, I'll pay for it. I'll tell you what, I'll pay for the entire thing, and I want to be fifty percent partner in Marcusan. Deal? Fuck you, no deal. But yes, bottle of wines. We'll give you, um, we'll give you a discount, and we'll give you most favored nation status on the allocations for the rest of the, you know, Marcusan for the rest of eternity. So I accepted this second offer. You know, and so, that was that's how Marcus Hung got started. So we then brought to market the the ninety Lorenzo and the ninety Hyde shards, and people you know blew people's minds. They were unfiltered, cloudy, you know, amazing, delicious California white wines that people had not seen much of of that style of wine at that time, and uh, that's that's that. You saw the the great rise of of California uh, popularity in terms of uh, the wine market in this country. Then maybe a little taper off. How if California were to reemerge with the kind of prominence that it had in the market in the late '90s? How would it go about doing that today? Well, you got to remember one thing. You know, when I went out with these bottles of wine that people had never tasted uh, and said, "Hey, you know, look, look at this Peter Michael Montplaisir Chardonnay. It's half the price of the Merceau Premier Cru," and um, it's made in much the same way, and it's it's and it's incredible. So, being that it was half the price of of the benchmark European model, it was a lot easier to sell. I think that we've kind of uh, things have reversed 
uh, today, you know, the, some of the top California wines are twice the price of the European model. So there, there's a, there's a whole new, the whole new paradigm of balance, if you will, in the marketplace and, and, and value. And I think that perhaps, you know, it's gone a little bit too far, uh, in, in the pendulum in that direction, which has made it extremely difficult for people to, for restaurateurs and, and retailers and distributors to sell as much wine as they would like and difficult for the consumers to enjoy them because they're, they're quite expensive. Now, it's very expensive to produce wine in California, you know, as it is in Long Island. And that's, that's part of the problem for Long Island wines is that it's more expensive, yes. But why, why should it be possible to bring in, you know, a Sauvignon de Touraine uh, from Loire Valley or, or, or Bergerac Blanc or, you know, uh, a, a nice little, uh, you know, wine from Sicily and have it retail and have it be quality and, and a live wine for, you know, for $10, $12 and not possible in the United States. Can, in a way, it kind of reflects the loss of manufacturing and the whole, you know, part of the problem we have in the United States in, in general politically today is that, you know, everything's more expensive. So it costs more to produce things and you become non-competitive. So, um, you know, I mean, I think it, that it's two things, it's price. And the other thing is, is style of wine. And, and thankfully the pendulum on the style has started to move back away from overblown, away from over alcoholic, away from too much oak, away from too much toast. You think uh, yeah, it's more mo- finesse style would be it, helpful it, it's, on the market? Yeah, it, it's moving back. Someone you know? like Hirsch, which you, Hirsch you represent. Hirsch or Pay or Canez or Anthill Farms or, you know, yeah, those kind of wines. Um, Ceritas, Lioko, you know, those kind of wines. That's what people are responding to today. And, uh, you know, it, the industry will always be there. There'll be some shifting around. and but As soon as we recover from our current economic malaise, which, by the way, it'll be about 45 years, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'll be able to sell anything and everything from California again at any price. So let me ask you, <laughs> you bring in a lot of stuff from Europe, too. Uh, you have for many years. What, what has been the change in the embrace of Europe from the American consumer? I mean, it cannot have been that in the late 90s you were selling much from the Jura. And, you know, now I see a new Jura producer in the Skernik portfolio. What mm-hmm. is the, from the driver's seat that you're in, what are the changes that you've seen in 25 years? Well, you know, it was, it was kind of like the Gruner Veltliner revolution in a way. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, and Riesling, you know, trying to sell Riesling. When we started working with Terry Thies, mm-hmm. the Terry Thies estate selection portfolio, and trying to get people to learn and recognize the beauty of of these wines was incredibly uphill uphill battle, and we had you know a couple of um, several several people who were worth noting who were really you know who deputized themselves to be part of this revolution. People like uh, Scott Carney at Gotham Bar, people like Steve Olson at Gramercy Tavern when it opened up, um, even you know way before, and that's where Paul Greco discovered. Uh, you should ask Paul, but I think Paul Paul was a captain at Gramercy at the time when Steve Olson was running was establishing the beverage program, and then later on he took over the beverage program from Steve. Um, so, working and hard, tirelessly sampling, making people taste Gruner Veltliners from Austria, uh, and seeing the people the acceptance slowly happening, and because we had these market leaders like Steve and Scott uh, out there. Endorse really effectively endorsing these these new wines. Slowly, people began to to embrace them and welcome them and start to feature them. And they were oddball wines. And we, you know, today we have maybe more oddball wines in the market than we have mainstream wines. So I think you know, I think that is a that that period is is probably a a, a foundation period for for building upon. And the second thing is that the you know the average age. Of the wine buyer today for a restaurant is 27 years old so these people ha- have tremendous um excitement passion interest and they're soaking up knowledge about you know wine like sponges but their benchmark references are way different than they, they were for, for for my generation which is good and bad 
I mean, I think it's not good when people who are in position of influence and buying, putting together wine lists don't really know what, what, what a good Merceau or Poligny tastes like. Um, you know those, you know those wines are not that accessible, maybe. But you know, it's not easy to find ways to to learn about these wines. But how can you, you know, decide what 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 a good Chardonnay based wine is if you haven't, you know, tasted these wines? I mean, that's just an, one example, but there are many, many examples like that. I mean, I don't think the answer is you know going for an MS or or an MW. I really don't. I mean that. You know, I have my I have my own opinion about about that whole thing as well, which is you know it's fine. I think that people want to go for MSMW. God bless you. Do it for yourself because you've got to do it for yourself first. Um, you want to study, you want to learn. By all means, but unlike the UK, where having an MS or an MW after your name, you know, all but guarantees you a position or a career in the wine business, it's not true here. That's not, I mean, we're much more organic about, you know, we're much more, you know, the feel of, like I said earlier when we first started talking, you know, you can tell when you start talking to somebody if they, if they have, and it's more important that they have the thirst for knowledge than the knowledge, I think, and the ability, and, and a palate, a decent enough palate that they can taste and determine, you know, not only what they like, but what's good, what's bad, what's flawed, what's not, you know, things like that, so... Do you feel like you reached out to restaurants in a way that other uh, wine companies in New York had not? When you had a relationship with Steve Olson, when you had a relationship with Scott Carney, and they hmm. helped push along these new changes, do you guys feel like you are tighter with the sommeliers uh, than some of the other companies? I mean, perhaps, but I think it you know wasn't it wasn't my my sparkling personality. I, I don't think alone. But I think it was the fact that we were onto something. You know, we 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 had we had a key that unlocked a door, and we opened the door, and everything. And then there was a there was a, a flood that came through, and people were welcoming and op and, and embracing it and responding to it. I, I you know I don't and, and as a result over the course of years we then yes then it became true that we had you know privileged access perhaps not really that's an overstatement we had an open door policy with many of the best top restaurants and 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 wine merchants who would look to us for great wine and maybe the next great thing and and, and that was was very important for us to uh be able to continue to build our portfolio because then it became sort of known first it was underground and then it came over out of out of the ground and potential people that had new exciting wines would would actually start looking out for us. Whereas, you know, my phone didn't ring. And my phone didn't ring in my office for, for three years from, from a single customer, by the way. I mean, any and every sale that was made had to be made from solicit, soliciting a sale, going out and, and knocking on somebody's door. And the same thing was true for the suppliers. But, after, you know, eventually, and then, of course, my currency started to develop because Helen Turley started, you know, she left Peter Michael, she left Peter Michael, but then, but then she started Bryant Family, and then she started Colgan, and then, and then she and her brother Larry started Turley. So, and then Turley, and then, and then Aaron Jordan came in to be the winemaker Turley, and then he started Fela, and you know, it's so like on and on and on and on. Um, that's the way that went. Was that the big change over the last twenty five years? Is that we saw the development of a wine market where. It was always a next big thing, whereas before it had been somewhat codified 1855 classification. This is the way it is. This is on top. This is down there. Basically about price and what you can pay for on that on that level, mm. whereas what we saw with increasing frequency is people looking for the next big wave crashing in and that the people who are often doing that are people who are faced with price constraints at the retail and restaurant level. I mean, everybody needs to sell things at a price that's going to work for mm -hmm. that venue and that you are right there in a time when the wine culture maybe changed the most that it has in 100 years with a, oh, I'm not going to just buy my case of Latour this year. I'm going to look for something different that seems to be really cool right now. Is that how things change? Yeah, I, I mean, that's... I never really looked at it or thought of it quite that way, but I think that's that's a, a good summation of what went down. 
Um, but you know, there are, as you're alluding to, there are economic um, axioms at work, and and you know, I two things. Someone showed me a, a beverage media recently of you know from. I don't know the mid the late '60s maybe and and you know I'd kind of like to see that it's it's incredible I wish you know? I had I mean every classified growth Bordeaux from you know and and that that was you know '59 vintage I think was the current vintage you know it was like forty two dollars a case for Leoville Barton and you know that's that's what it was and the other thing is I have a a, a friend or a, an acquaintance who uh, whose family was friend, friendly with the Brady family that you know originally owned the Twenty One Club and they have a copy of the Twenty One Club wine list from from you know from the 50s and that is quite interesting to look at too because it's i mean it's all it's a very small wine list it's a book as you might imagine it's a bound book and it's got a page for bordeaux it's got a page for burgundy and it, and it has a page for german riesling the, what do you well this is going to be an easy one to answer but the what do you think the most expensive category of wine was out of those three uh german sweet wine right no German, not not sweet wine, but you know, spätlesers. Spätleser. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and the, I think the average bottle price on the wine list at the Twenty One Club in the in the late sixties, I guess it would be, was eleven dollars and fifty cents for German Riesling, um, ten dollars for um, Bordeaux, and nine dollars for Burgundy. And so I remember actually working at Windows when I was working on the floor as, as assistant sommelier to Kevin, we had wines on, on, on our extended list that were $9 a bottle. Um, so yeah. now that things are a hundred times that, is it just force people to look for alternatives and it, it yeah. created a yeah. market where we're looking for the best new alternative? Right. That's why, you know, Chile got discovered first and then Argentina and, you know, other areas like that. Um, but, you know, the, I think the, mo the most, yes, I guess, the world is wide open now, and wherever there's good wine um, that's made well and expressive of a place, at a price, it can be sold, and people will appreciate it. That's the biggest change is that the, the lock set of a mind of, of, of the wine lover has, has opened up. They're no longer you know, boxed in to you know, wine for dummies culture. Which is it has to be Bordeaux or Burgundy or or you know, whatever, and uh, that's fantastic. Now that's my perspective. We're in the greatest city in the world. You know, we are you know so fortunate to be here in, in the metropolitan New York area where we've got you know ridiculous amount of of, of people to um, to sell to. Who, who you know, I, I've always found that to be true here. You know, we have you know more great restaurants on one street than most cities in the country do. I'm not saying that to, to denigrate any other city. It's just that here, you know, if one, one buyer doesn't like the wine, you can go across the street, you'll find somebody else. And it, so it gives us a playing field that allows, it's like a giant Petri dish of experimentation. And, and you know, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, there's no other place in the world like New York for so many reasons. What was it like meeting Terry? You and Terry Thies, you guys... Change things for a lot of people. A lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, read those catalogs, worked with those wines. I think it really, um, he clarified and conceptualized a lot of things that are quite important to how people think about wine today. Mm -hmm. How did it happen that you guys met each other? Well, first of all, I have to say, you know, Terry, Terry and I were actually born on the same day in the same year, um, by, from two different women, we believe. But, <laughs> Maybe, but there's something about there's a, there's sort of a, a a stronger than simpatico kind of uh, connection between the two of us. But the truth be told, uh, it was it was my good friend David Bowler, who was working for us, who he had worked uh, as your podcast uh, eloquently. Oh, explains. I worked for him. I just listened. You know? uh, so you know, D David was very familiar. He was a German wine lover, and he worked at Crossroads with William Bramsky, and he knew Terry Thies, and he knew Rudy Wiest. And when David was working for us, I forget what year it was, but we had nineteen thirty-two. I think we <laughs> he's incredibly well preserved. Um, we had Terry, we had Rudy Wiest wines in our portfolio, and David said, "You know, you guys got to meet." this guy, Terry Thies. I mean, he's the real deal and, you know, he's got an incredible portfolio. 
uh, of wines. Rudy, Rudy's got a, got a good portfolio, of course, but, um, you know, there was a different approach to the marketplace that, that Terry had than, than Rudy had. I think uh, Rudy was a little bit more, you know, he was older, he was more, cons- I'm, I'm, I'm using these terms in com- for comparison terms now yeah. only, but, you know, a little more wore the suit. Uh, he, he was not, not, this was not a fault, but he was very interested only in on-premise sales. He didn't care if, if, if the, the wines were sold. He didn't want to sell the wines actually to retail at the time. Whereas Terry was, you know, he was just this rock and roll, you know, child of Woodstock who had lived in Germany and was absolutely in love. And, you know, he had the tremendous advantage of, of really kind of cherry picking all of Germany, you know, because right. he, he made a commitment to, to an ugly duckling wine category, you know, along at the same time as Rudy did, but before many, many others. Because there's not a lot of places you can go and say, yeah, I, I do want to work with you. I want to bring in your wines, but I don't like that one. I don't like that one. This one I like, I'll put my name on. But he's able to do that every well, year because still, still, it's Germany. St- well, still to this day. Yeah. And it gets more and more difficult as the as the category gets more and more successful. Because most of the time they're like, hey, I want you to take my wine if you're my importer. But he's like, no, I'm going to put my name on this one. Right. It's it's a little bit, his approach is a little bit like, um, you know, the, the approach of buying Burgundy for the true the true quality Burgundy importer, which is you go to the cellar, um, you taste through all the barrels in Burgundy. You do this, right? You can cho- you choose the wines that you like, and if they're available, you commit to these barrels or you commit to these appellations, and not those, these not those, and that you know whenever the economy is is weak. And producers are not selling as as briskly as they would like to. The buyer has more choice, and you can actually, you know, set the rules a little bit differently. Terry had wide open path in Germany. Still to this day, he he, he sits with the producers and tastes through the new vintage. He goes March. He spends the entire month of March every year tasting the new vintage before he writes his tasting notes and then the catalog. And uh, but he takes it to another level. He'll say, you know. I like this wine. I think it needs a little more Seuss Reserve or doesn't, or, you know, it's a little, we need to create, you know, what he calls um, the sense of sweetness, the balance, really. It's not sweet, but the balance of the wine. The, the, there's too much extract, too much minerality. We need to, to balance this off so that it, it works. So that's incredible. I mean, I don't know if that's unique. It's still, it's, you know, to be able to go into producers and, and say, we're going to work with this wine. It's going to be a Terry Thies estate selection, quote unquote, imported by Michael Skarnick Wines. But those are not. And not only that, but we're exclusive. We represent you exclusively in the United right. States. So you yeah. can't sell those wines to anybody else. But we're going, to, we're going to kick ass with what we do. You know, what we do buy from you and you'll be happy, hopefully. And that's, that's, the, that's really the, uh, the method and it's, it seems to be working. Has it... Partly been facilitated by that rumor that you hear that in America the Cabernet and Spät Lace sell, but in Germany the real dry wine sell for the domestic audience. I don't think it's been facilitated. That's a that's an accurate statement, which is really bizarre mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's um, you know if you want to get into the Parker Parkerization of 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 the wine world, you know it's that's partly what's going on. The for years, the Germans were, you know, second, third fiddle to Italy and France, and they didn't seem to be able to break into the marketplace. They 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 hired, you know, umpteen um, focus marketing focus marketing research groups to tell them, you know, what they need to do. And the they, guy from Theater's Dance Party came in. And yeah, he was like, <laughs> right. So they, they figured out they, their conclusion was, oh, you know, uh, what sells in the world are dry wines. We need to make dry wines, you know, not 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 sweet, fruity wines. To, to the and, and and they've been doing it to such an extent that the actual domestic German wine drinker now prefers dry wines. You know, so there are some great dry wines made in Germany, no question. But that's really not, in my opinion, what makes the the, the wines really really tantalizing. There, you know. When did you know that it was going to work out with Terry? You guys made a significant um, commitment. To bring in a lot of what we would call mm. skews. There's a lot of wines in the German portfolio, Terry. That's a thick catalog. When did you know that it was going to make it? Well, 
I knew I knew right away. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have jumped in. Yeah. I, mean, I knew this was a tremendous opportunity because um, the year before, I think we sold a total of 300 cases of German wine when we were selling Rudy's wines. Mm -hmm. And the very first year we sold 3,000 cases of Terry's wine. So it was like, it was bang, bang zoom, as, as Ralph Cramden used to say. And, um, you know, that wasn't a problem. Again, you know, it's being able to take advantage of an undervalued stock. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that was an ama amazing opportunity for us to take over. He had been all over. I mean, he'd been with everybody and, and you know, Lauber tried it for two years and gave it up. And then Winebow had it, but just before us, Winebow had Terry Thies. And I'll never forget when we took, because we took over their inventory. And Terry had a guy named Bill Adams, who was his uh, national sales manager. And it, when I looked at the inventory that we were going to take, first of all, I had a heart attack because it was huge. You know, it was scary. Yeah. Because it was a lot of items, a lot of items. And, you know, in, in, in our business, the, you know, the lingo is we order by pallets or truckloads or, uh -huh. or containers. So a pallet is 56 cases or a half pallet is 28 cases. Well, I looked down the list of inventory that Winebow had and every single item had 55 cases and 11 bottles or 27 cases and seven bottles. And what does that tell you? That they, they sampled it, but they didn't sell a single case. They right. had almost every one of those items, they had entire you know, just short of a full pallet or, short, or just short of a, of a half pallet of all these wines because Bill Adams had written the order for them because, well, guess what? They didn't know a damn thing about German wine, but they thought it would be good for them. That's a key too. You know, you, you can't just get into a business because other people are successful. Mm -hmm. you, you need to know what you're doing. And it's not just, hey, look at Skernick, man. He's he's done well. That must be fucking easy. Yeah. If he can do it, I can do it. You know, right. It's not, it's not, it may look that way because we have so many. Because you make it easy? Because <laughs> you make it look easy? Yeah. Or yeah. or we also, I mean, the fact is, you know, you've got so many ex-Skernick uh, people who have their own businesses now. So it, it looks like, well, if they could do it, anybody can do it. That, I think, would be a, be a huge mistake for some people. Uh, but apparently, we, we, we figured out a way to do this well. And the model, uh, we've, we are serving still as a model for, for many of the other people that were, have worked with us and others that haven't actually so i don't have a patent on that unfortunately were you expecting to see the success of the champagne portfolio that terry put together because it seems so uh not exactly a sure thing at the time and now it seems like the coin of the realm mm. i i have to admit that i was i was a little frightened at first about it because there was heavy marketing from the big brands, it was just, they own yeah, the market, right. and it was you know this was these were fairly high priced uh, wine items to keep in inventory, and it, it, you really had to work incredibly hard to break into to sell against the grand mark. Uh, you know, I don't want to call them producers. What should we call them? Uh, yeah, well, houses, I guess. Yeah. The industrial houses, we can yeah. call them. You know, but. Um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised at, at, at the success. In fact, I remember um, when I, my, my, my mom lived in Florida, she's no longer with us, but uh, I wanted to take her out for her birthday one year, and I went to Daniel Boulou's restaurant in West Palm Beach. I've heard of that place. I know you have, and uh, I, I, you know, I walked in, I actually, I think Daniel John has made the reservation for me. Okay. It's good to have friends in high places, um, but sat down, looked at the wine list, and I could not believe how many great grower champagnes there were on the list. And, uh. I, and I called over whoever the, uh, you know, the maitre d' was. I said, well, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. You know, she goes, oh, this is guy Levy, Levy <laughs> yeah. Dalton. Yeah. Levy Dalton. Did they really uh, say that? Yeah. Ah. Uh. This guy Levy Dalton, you know, yeah. put the wine list together. And uh, yeah. Let's speak about that a little bit because you, you complimented uh, New York earlier and the greatest city in the world, but a lot of, uh, the sales success, especially for categories like thesis wines, seem to often be driven by uh, cities that are not New York in, in the United States because you are a national, uh, you work mm -hmm. with wines nationally. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems like a lot of the growth in Grower Champagne particularly is in some of the cities that aren't it aren't New York. Is that true or, um, you know, how has that affected things? It is true. Uh, um, we, we obviously, New York is our, is our top market. Mm -hmm. and uh, But... I think that the the timing of the of of 
are getting involved, Terry getting involved with with these grower champagnes, was at a time when you had you know the Raj Pars of the world, the Michael, you know, and and all these great sommeliers um, who were just open armed because uh, you know if you love champagne and you, you taste you know Jimenez or or Lallemand or Villemar or whatever or Silos if you like that style, you know you can't help but fall in love, and that's that's. That's the easy part of our business. You know, the difficult part is, you know, I love it, but my customers won't. Or, or, or I, hate, I hate more than that is, you know, it's too cheap. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to sell it. It's, it's, you know, I can't make enough money. My customers won't buy the champagne. It's too cheap, you know, that kind of thing. But yes, we've been very successful. And I think, you know, Kevin Pike, who, who runs our- Pretty the, smart guy. The national division, if you will, for, for our Terry Thies and National Wines, you know, has done an amazing job um, promoting the champagnes as well as the other the other categories. But the champagnes in particular, you know, he's developed a champagne seminar that he does, and he started doing that grassroots. Terry also, of course, um, and he went to Atlanta, and he went to um, Charleston, and he went to Birmingham, and he went to Dallas, and he went all over Colorado, and people just lapped this stuff up. So, you know, we sometimes have to fight for Skernick Wines in New York to, to get a, a, a good enough allocation of, of Vilmar. It's, you know, it's not fun. You know, because, you know, yeah. unlike we don't when leave you first any... started with it, it's now quite a, yeah, people want that wine now. I, I've been saying for years, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a, a poetic statement, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more than a little bit is that, you know, eventually people don't realize, you know, we are, what is it? Uh, maybe, you know, 4% of the population drinks 98% of the fine wine, mm-hmm. you know? So to me, that's scary because I mean, as today, you can't, you can't, you know, you, the average person can't afford first growth Bordeaux or Romani Conti or, or, or even, you know, any uh, Domaine Lafont, any of these wines, Rumier. That's got, my, my bold prediction is that's going to happen for everything. Right. It's going to happen for Cota. It's going to happen for even average Sancerre. It's already $110. I mean, it's right, expensive. Right. Or you know? let's bring it down a bit. Let's say every wonderful wine that you and I know are going to become unobtainable because why? Because they only make 1,500 cases of wine mm-hmm. or 1,000 cases of wine or less or 3,000. It doesn't take much in the way of discovery for the public at large to, to decimate the availability of these wines and the price will go up and you will not be able to you know in 20 years you won't be able to drink your your favorite wines anymore so you what know? is next for michael skernick and michael skernick wines what's the play um what what are you going to do next with well, that reality coming to uh, the bear? well right now we actually we're, we're just um the latest thing we're doing is establishing a artisanal spirits portfolio mm-hmm. oh you are because yeah. it seems like for yeah. a long time you guys have had a spirits license but yeah. you, outside of blue gin and a little well, bit we of have this the, a little bit of that there didn't have, seem to be a lot right I mean, we've got the fabulous cognacs of uh, of Matthew Scholar's family tradition. Quite cognac. good, amazing, yeah. amazing. And Charles Neal, you and work Charles Neal's Armagnacs, which are amazing, and um, Camus Calvados. So we've got the leader in, in in you know the best producer in various categories. We we've just hired a guy named Adam Schumann, who was the head bartender mixologist, for lack of a better term, for the Fatty Crab Fatty Crew. They call themselves uh, okay. Empire of Restaurants. Sure, and uh, he is going to you know help us. He's now gonna, he's going to be our spirits portfolio manager and. Is that the first time you guys have had a spirits portfolio yeah, manager? Yeah, and it's also the first time we've ever had a portfolio manager without a portfolio. Interesting. <laughs> well, <laughs> something to build be, into. That could be an easy job or a really, really hard job for right, Adam. Right, right. You know, but, it's, but it's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, in much the same way, in fact, you know, the way that we built Skernick Wines in the beginning, you know, it started out, we started talking a little while before about, it was, it was a California wine, um, pretty much California wine portfolio to start with for mm-hmm, two years. Mm-hmm. And then we... We, we delved into French wines, and then a few years later, we, we got involved with Italian wines, and then a few years later, we hooked up with Terry Thies. And so we, we didn't do it all at once, right? which I think is a key to how – because we layered them without any premeditation to it. It just happened that way. It organic. was organic. It was organic. Yeah. And so we you – know, we, uh, Harmon and I and, and everybody that we, we have in our firm, we, we learn as we go. That's the most amazing thing about this business. We, we don't – we don't know it all by far. And we learned. So, you know, Randall Graham, who I referenced before from Bonnie Dune, called me up 
um, about two years after we started Skernick Wines and said, Michael, man, I, I, I have something that's going to change your life. I said, well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I just got, I just got a lunch. I was at Shea Panisse, had lunch with Kermit Lynch. You should call him right away. Call him. Here's his number. And so I, I called Kermit, uh, flew out to California the next day, had dinner at Shea Panisse, did the Kermit thing. Actually, the first thing he said was, go buy my book and read it on the plane on the oh, way. Oh, that what he yeah, said? that's what he said, yeah. But it's got to be great to have dinner at Chez Panisse with Kermit. It was. It was awesome. You know? Yeah. And we went, and then, so then we went to France and, you know, visited all the Kermit Lynch domains and learned about, about French wine and learned about, you know. What was the Ravenau visit like? Um, the Ravenau visit was, was pretty much uh, otherworldly, and that's where the term in the zone was, was, um, was coined. You know, we were there, uh, Bowler was there, Polana was there, um, Harmon was there, Lerner was there, and Lynch. But, uh, you know, we, uh, yeah, we, you know, if you've been to Chablis, you know that Ravenau is, you know, there's a triangle, and there's Ravenau, you can walk from Ravenau to Dovisa, and in the middle is the Hostellerie de Clos, which is the restaurant. And so we, that was our day. We had an incredibly ridiculous day tasting um, with Ravenau in the morning and then walking over to Dovisa and then walking over to the restaurant and drinking. I think we had, we, I remember exactly what we had that blew our minds. It was the 1973 Ravenau, Ravenau Valmure, I believe, amongst other wines. So we really, really got it. It was, it was pretty, pretty crazy. But Ravenau himself didn't say anything uh, but, you know, he put the thief in the barrel and he would take the thief and put it in your glass and he would say, Blanchot, Valmure, Leclos. And, you know, there was, you know, there's oftentimes when words are superfluous, you know, you don't always have to, you know, I, 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 it's another pet peeve I have. I think it's great that people, wine lovers, want to know everything they can, want to learn everything, want to soak everything up. Uh, but, you know, sometimes, look, we cross the line. I mean, it's, it's not all that important, you know, it's not all that important, all the different vinification techniques that go into making this wine. Or maybe I should rephrase it. It is important, but it's not the first thing. It's not, what's the primary thing? I think we tend, people in our business tend to forget a couple of key things. One, number one, wine is about pleasure, you know. Number two, it's about balance. And, uh, and, and number three, you know, the, the, the interest I always found, you know, when I was starting early years of Skernick Wines, I asked a lot of those questions. Why? Because I wanted to see if I could figure out, you know, the, the, the um, what do I want to call it, the, the litmus paper for finding a great winemaker mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. finding a great vineyard. You know, do you the think more- Parker set that up a little bit? Like, hey, low yields and do it this way and it's going to be good. I don't think Parker... I, 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 don't, I mean, he was, he was a voice in that. No, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. Parker, Parker, you know, he did amazing things and enriched a lot of people in Bordeaux mm-hmm, and in the mm-hmm. Rhone to start with and later on in, in Napa Valley by, you know, saying what he believes, which is, you know, he, he loves this wine, this wine, this wine. And, you know, if you read through, you see some commonalities. And I think that's what, what people are looking for. But it's, 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 not the, it's not the start. It's not the end point, you know about wine it's for me it's how does it make you feel mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what's the experience like and what does it what does it taste what does it what does it do to you really more than you know we and we have also a shortage of adequate words or descriptive terms in our limited vocabulary limited ability as humans to express ourselves to express what's really happening in the glass and what we're really experiencing so we say, oh, it's raspberries. I, I'm getting, I'm getting peaches. Uh, you know, I'm, this little leather. These are, for me, like, you know, second place ways to to describe the experience because we we're, we're short. We, we don't really have enough of the ability to really get to pinpoint it. So those of us that taste a lot can say more. You know, mm, this reminds me of the Rumier Lake Croix 01. Very similar, you know, to, you know, because then you start to get benchmarks with other people that have tasted the same ones. But then when you run into the problem with which bottle did you taste? Well, let and, me ask and you. And when, you know. 
as things have changed and people are seeking out different wines, do you think that they're also seeking out different feelings? Like if people are less interested in old wine and more interested in wines that are maybe carbonic or semi-carbonic and drinkable younger, are they looking for a different feeling experience than they may have 20 years ago? I don't really know. Yeah. I don't really know the answer to that. But what I only I, what, ask because I don't know either. What I'd like to say is that, um, you know, the, the well, with, with wine, you know, what really bothers me is the, the guy who, you know, goes into the steakhouse three nights a week and orders the same steak and the same potatoes and the same Cabernet. You know, what the fuck? I mean, if you're... If you're married, you know, you have to, you, you've sort of made a pledge you're only going to sleep with one woman for the rest of your life. But, I mean, play the field when it comes to wine, man, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the world of, of possibilities is so, so expansive. and it's, I mean, why have the same wine all the time? So I think it's more, you know, I would like to encourage people to don't, don't drink the same wine. Not ever, but, I mean, keep exploring, keep looking, keep expanding your horizons and your your palate experience and the more you do that the more you're going to enrich every single wine experience that you have and pay attention you know listen to listen to the wine for lack of a better term it's hard to it's hard to hear some wines because they scream too loud at you you know and then they're it, and then it's hard to hear some wines because they they're very very quiet and they take time the the dust has to clear where the air is the clearer, everybody has to leave the room so you can experience it. You know. Thanks, Michael. Did, we'll I, let answer, the, did I answer that question? You sure did. <laughs> we'll let the dust clear on that one, and I really appreciate your stopping by to explain that further to us. Michael Skernick of Michael Skernick Wines, Sayoset, New York. The man, the myth, the legend. Michael, Thanks, thank Levy. you, sir. Awesome. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.